read the story by a pastor this week about a woman in his church. Every time she showed up to church and the, the church would pray together, she had the same simple prayer. These words, Oh Lord, thank you, Jesus. And she prayed it time after time, week after week. The kids at the church, the pastor says, would, would start laughing every time because when she opened her mouth during prayer, they knew what was coming. Oh Lord, thank you, Jesus. Finally, somebody asked her, well, why, why do you pray the same little prayer? She said, well, to be honest, I'm just combining the two prayers that I know. We live in a bad neighborhood. And some nights there are bullets flying, and I have to grab my daughter, and I hide on the floor. And in that desperate state, all I know how to cry out is, oh, Lord. When I wake up in the morning, and I see that we're okay, I say, thank you, Jesus. So when I got to take my baby to the bus stop and she gets on that bus and I don't know what's going to happen to her while she's away, again, I cry out, oh Lord. And then when three o'clock comes and the bus arrives and my baby is safe, I say, thank you, Jesus. Those are the only two prayers I know. And when I get to church, God has been so good that I just put my two prayers together. Oh Lord, thank you, Jesus. Last Sunday, we... We looked at the sixth healthy missional marker in our series to be a compelling Christian community, a place where we understand that our love and our unity for one another, with one another, is a powerful testimony to who Jesus is and, and, and that we are called to love one another as we are, not as we should be, that we share life together beyond Sunday morning and, and the worship service. And we used as our text, you remember Acts chapter 2, where there's a very compelling picture of that community in Jerusalem. It's, it's, only, it's only days, perhaps weeks, after the Lord Jesus has ascended back into heaven that we read the description of that early church. They were devoted, you remember, to the apostles' teaching. and That was the authority on how to live their lives as followers of Jesus because the apostles had been with Jesus. They were devoted to the fellowship, committed to one another, remembering the words of Jesus in John 13 and John 17 that it was their love for one another that would identify them as, as Christ's disciples. It was their unity that would convince the world that Jesus is Lord. Their breaking of the bread, most likely a, a link of that as they shared meals together, remembering Jesus when he broke bread and said, remember me. And so Jesus became, I think, the consuming priority of that early community. And then, and then prayer. We're going to talk a little bit more about prayer this morning. The text tells us in Acts that amazing things went on in that community. Miracles done by the apostles, people sharing things in common, selling possessions, giving to those who had need. They met in homes and they shared meals and they met in the temple daily for worship. And the last verse, you recall, tells us that God added to their number daily those who were being saved. That is compelling Christian community. Something was going on there, and people were drawn to it. What fun must that have been? Wow. But, but I also think, I think, well, it was, it was a different era. It was a different culture. There were things going on in, in, in that day that contributed, perhaps, to some of the dynamics that, that we find in that community. Certainly, both the Jewish rulers and, and the Romans uh, were, were not friendly toward followers of Jesus, uh, and, and the followers of Jesus were, were probably pretty convinced that, that he was returning sooner than later. 
So there may have been a sense of, well, why not give our stuff away? You know, Jesus is coming. We don't need it. But I like to think that there was something even more that was going on. Something bigger at work. And I'm convinced it's just, just my spin. I hope I, uh, I uh, convince you of it as well. That it was their devotion to prayer, that fourth item they were devoted to, that really changed things. I can't prove it based on the text, so I have to admit that I'm speculating this morning, but I like to think of it as informed speculation. We noted last week that the apostles were the teachers, the leaders of the Jerusalem church. All of them had been with Jesus except for Matthias. And when they were with Jesus, Luke records for us that they had asked Jesus to teach them to pray. Now, don't forget, these were Jews. These were, these were men who'd grown up in a tradition of prayer. There was formal prayer three times a day at the temple. Morning, afternoon, evening, there was plenty of prayers that were spoken in between those formal times. But these praying Jewish disciples of Jesus wanted him to teach them to pray. Why is that? I am convinced that after spending three plus years with Jesus, they saw a power in his life that was linked to his relationship with his heavenly father. I believe they saw in Jesus a life that showed the difference that prayer and relationship with the father could make. And being Jewish men in that day who were following their rabbi, the expectation of followers of rabbis, would they would become like their rabbi at the end of the process. And so they knew that they had better learn to pray like Jesus did. Make sense? Yep. So our text this morning is that prayer that Jesus taught them in response to, to their request. We know it as the Lord's Prayer. And, and in the sense that it came from his heart to his disciples, yes, it was his prayer, but... I love to think of it as the disciples' prayer or the followers' prayer. It's a model, I believe, or a pattern for prayer for all of those who, who are followers of Jesus. And I, and I think that it's this prayer, again, just my opinion, that would have shaped the praying of those followers of, G, of Jesus in, in, in Jerusalem and played, played a big role in their becoming that compelling community. And... And can I say it this way? In God doing so many of the things that he did, I think, I think their prayers were compelling, if you will, to the Father. Brian Edwards, in his book titled Revival, A People Saturated with God, maintains that for every revival that we know about in the world's history, where, there, where there's written record, regardless of when it happened or where it happened, there is a common theme, and that is prayer. God's people, desperate for God, begging God to show up and to show himself in ways that they have not seen. Prayer. Prayer of desperate people, desperate for God. And I think the prayer that Jesus taught his followers is a prayer for God to show up, to show himself. And, and don't forget, it's obvious, but I think it's worth remembering of all the prayers that he could have taught them to pray. This is the one. 
He taught them to pray this prayer. And so we're going to stand together and we're going to read Jesus' introductory words there in Matthew chapter 5, excuse me, chapter 6. Kind of a, a warning, if you will, about uh, prayer that was sort of the common practice of the leaders in that day. Uh, and then we'll read those prayers, uh, the prayer that he teaches them, as well as uh, just some further words of instruction that follow. So let's, let's stand together and read what is probably a very familiar prayer for us following these initial words together. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Jesus said to his followers, this then is how you should pray. It is important to understand, I think, that, that he's not saying to his followers that, that when you pray, this is exactly how you should pray, verbatim, word for word, or that this is the only prayer. Because when we look at prayers of Peter and Paul in the New Testament, uh, we find that, that their prayers do not follow this pattern exactly even though it's not necessary to pray this prayer word for word, I really believe that the principles that are packed into this prayer, the truth statements ought to be reflected in, in our praying. So, so here's what I'm asking you this morning. Just, just hear that and, and take this thought with you. This prayer should inform the way that we pray. You know, and even if you disagree with that, that's okay. I just hope you'll wrestle with that. And, and, and go away wrestling. This prayer should inform the way that we pray. So we're going to do just a very quick overview. I'm going to spend most of the time on the way that, that Jesus began the prayer. So knowing the prayer like you do, we just read it together. I want you to turn to someone and, and ask them, how does Jesus begin the prayer and why is that significant? Go ahead, just take a minute. How did Jesus begin the prayer and why is that significant? Okay, we ready? By the way, I think that's the most quiet that I can ever remember you being in the discussion of a question. Wow. What do you think? What'd your neighbor say? 
What's significant about the way that Jesus began this prayer that he taught to his followers? It's about God first, not us. That's such a good observation. Right on, right on, yeah. Absolutely. Way too intimate to refer to to Yahweh as Father. Good reminder, yes, our Father. Good, good stuff. Exactly. Our Father. Our Father. You're immediately tied in with every other member of the body of Christ. Yes. 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 Right on. Good observation. Is there another hand back there? Daddy provided everything. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Paul's words to the Romans. Abba. Papa. The Aramaic. Yes. Yes. Um, Jesus really did introduce this prayer in a, in a stunning way. To, to think of Yahweh as Father must have just, I, I wish I could have seen their eyes as, as he said that. It's, it's not an emphasis that is found in the Old Testament. You know, to be that close to, to the one who they knew their history, the one who parted the Red Sea and drowned the Egyptian army and shook Mount Sinai and tore down the walls of Jericho, to be that intimate with that God, surely that was not a safe thing in their thinking. But Jesus is giving them permission to do just that. To understand God in a new way, to relate and to pray to Him as Father. I think, my friends, I think this is the point of the prayer. I always probably get in trouble for saying those kinds of things. But I, I really do think that this is the point. If, if we don't get this, the remainder of the prayer will not be what I believe is, is transformational in its example for our prayer lives and, and what Jesus intended. Everything flows from, from God as Father uh, as the starting point. Coming to God as Father makes all the difference in how we pray. How we pray makes a difference in how I think our Father responds to our prayer, if I can say it like that. And how our Father responds to our prayer, both as individuals and, and, and as we pray collectively as His people, is I think what is at the heart of making us a compelling community that calls attention to God. Because this prayer is about God and it calls attention to Him. When it starts to shape the way that we pray, suddenly our lives begin to call attention to who God is. I think it's this truth that permeated the lives of those Jerusalem believers. There's an old Jewish story that tells of a little four-year-old boy named Mordecai. He refused to attend school and study Hebrew. That was horrifying to his parents. Whenever his parents tried to immerse his mind in the Torah, he would just, he would just sneak away and he'd go out back and play on the swing set. Every form of persuasion failed. They even even took him to a psychiatrist. That also proved futile. Nothing changed the young boy's heart. And it seemed that his heart was growing more distant and lonely and hardened every week. Finally, in utter desperation, Mordecai's parents brought him to the local rabbi, a warm and wise man. And as the parents explained their plight, they poured out their frustration and despair. The rabbi listened very intently. And without saying a word, he took little Mordecai and he he lifted him up and put him on his lap. And he held him in his arms close to his chest. 
And he held him close enough and tight enough, the story goes, so that the young boy could feel the safe, rhythmic beating of the rabbi's heart. Then, without a word, he gently put the boy down, and the parents took him home. And from that point on, Mordecai listened to his parents, and he studied the Torah. And when it was appropriate, he also slipped away to play on the swing set. Little boy's life was transformed because his heart had been close to the rabbi. How about our hearts? Do we sit with our father? Do we understand him as father? Do we relate to him as father as both individuals and as a congregation? And I know that that, that can be very hard because for, for many of us, father does not have good association. It's, it's bad images and bad memories. But, but my friends, that is the starting point. Getting to that place that Jesus invites us to, understanding God to be the perfect father, to be a father who has such a great heart of love that that when we become his children, he secures us in his loving arms forever. He gives us himself. All the spiritual blessings that belong to Jesus also belong to us. We are co-heirs with Jesus. That's what Paul writes in Romans. We sang about that this morning. One reason for believing this, I think, the, the, the real important reason for believing this is because Jesus lived out this relationship for us. Read Jesus' life in the Gospels. Listen to what he says about the Father, how he describes the Father. The Son adores the Father. The Father adores the Son. And when we become children of God through faith in Christ, we have entered into that same relationship. It's hard to wrap our minds around. But that is what the Scripture teaches. That is what it means to be co-heirs with Jesus. That is what the Scripture means when it describes Jesus as our brother. We have become dearly loved children of God. This is the foundational truth of this prayer that Jesus teaches his followers. And not only is he a wonderful and loving father, but he's he's a ruling king. And perfect in character. Holy is your name. Speaks volumes to the security and the confidence with which we can and should live our lives lives. Our Father is in control of this world. Nothing happens outside of His jurisdiction because the world and the universe are all His. Does that truth give us confidence? His perfect rule flows out of His perfect character. His kingdom is so wonderful. And Jesus knew that. His kingdom is so wonderful that Jesus calls us to pray for it. Father, bring it to earth. We are so confident in your goodness and perfect character that we want everyone on this planet to experience life as your child. Living in the reality of your kingdom, obedient to your perfect will in all that they do. Are we so taken by the character of our Father that we want everyone to know him. 
I appreciate what Zach said about the plural, our Father. It's a wonderful reminder that he's the father of, of many children. And you know what? He has no favorites. I don't know about the household that you grew up in, whether you were favored or not. God has no favorites. And the love that he has for you does not lessen the love that he has for me, nor vice versa. We are not the sole recipients of his amazing love. His amazing love is immense. There is plenty to go around for all kinds of folks to experience. That Lee would pray for Muslims who are killing our brothers and sisters in Christ is evidence of his confidence and belief in the enormous love of God. And if that kind of prayer troubles our hearts, then we don't really understand who we were apart from God's love. Immense, amazing love. We begin to see this world more clearly when we understand him as our Father. Our Father. Father to those in Syria and other countries of the world. And I think that when we begin to experience that and the Holy Spirit begins to bring that to life, we begin to pray in ways that expand our understanding and our participation in the kingdom of God. Give us today our daily bread. Now here is a striking truth. In this model for prayer, this is the only request that has to do with physical needs. Done. Give us today our daily bread. Remember Jesus' introductory words? that we read just prior to the prayer. Don't be like the pagans who keep babbling. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. And then just a bit further into Matthew 6, we would hear him say that we should not concern ourselves with what to eat and drink and wear physical needs because, again, our Heavenly Father knows that we need them. Instead, Jesus says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's almost as if the words are a reminder to us of where our needs are met, and not to worry about them. So does that mean that we can't pray for our needs? No, I don't think that's it at all. But I think, again, this model for prayer should inform how we pray. It seems that Jesus is not prohibiting prayer for physical needs, but if that's the kind of thing that dominates our prayer life, then we have forgotten who our Father is. Make sense? Yes, we can pray for our physical needs, but I think Jesus is saying, you know, it's not necessary to give a lot of time to that because your papa knows what you need. He reminds us of the importance of confession and forgiveness because that is key to a growing and life-giving relationship with our Father. How do we sit in the arms of our loving and gracious and perfect Father and hold bitter attitudes of unforgiveness towards others, maybe even those who are members of our own family. Jesus would say, that's inconceivable. That's why I think he concludes the teaching of this prayer with that reminder. Uh, Let me say one more thing about forgiveness. Make sure that you forgive others of the sins that they've committed against you if you are counting on the forgiveness of your heavenly Father toward you and your sins. This is huge. This is just ginormous. And I think it's our relationship with him as father and growing in what that means, it fills us with the ability to forgive others. 
It's the reality of who our Father is to us that begins to work its way into the cracks and the crevices of our hearts where we hide things and hope that they won't be found. The request that, that the Father lead us away from temptation, not away from testing, because that's a part of the deal, Lead us away from temptation. It, it's, it's, it's the idea of, of rescue us from temptation. That we would never find ourselves as your children in a place where we are choosing something over you. Because there is nothing better than you, Father. Don't ever let us go to that place. <laughs> this morning, Phil mentioned the electricity. It went out. Creates a bit of a panic around here. Suddenly the computers don't work. The sound system doesn't work. Sarah's wondering what she's going to do with the kids in the dark downstairs. And so we start making plans, and, and then the lights went on. It was so cool. <laughs> it's like, that's what happened in Acts 2. The lights went on. The energy, the enthusiasm, the joy, the lights are on. We were a compelling community in our joy and our excitement about the lights coming on. I thought, that's what the Spirit brings into our lives. If we are willing to take the time. And, and I think, I think this, is, this, is where I, well, this is where I need to end. This prayer calls us to a greater vision of our Heavenly Father and the life that He has called us to. I don't know about you, but my prayer life sometimes is so pathetic, it's just fright. I spend so much time praying about me stuff. And this prayer calls me to pray about God's stuff. To spend time praising and celebrating and rejoicing in who He is. Praying about the seriousness of the spiritual battle that I find myself in that I won't succumb to temptation. Just throwing out a little prayer of confidence that says, Lord, I know You're, you're taking care of me. Wow! That becomes becomes different. And so let me close with just this thought. Again, take it with you for what it's worth. In our culture, we have taken things that, that take time and we've shortened them down. Because time is our most precious commodity. We'd rather somebody take our money most of the time than our time. Yes? For many of us. I think we've done that with prayer. You know, we take the world's problems and we cook them down to 30 minutes minus commercials on a TV show at night. You know, we have drive through restaurants so that we get served more quickly because we don't have time to sit down and, and to eat more at length. I think that our culture of quickness, quick fixes, quick satisfaction has infiltrated our prayer lives. And Jesus is suggesting here that relationship with Abba with Papa, with our Heavenly Father, is something it takes time and intentionality to cultivate. Am I saying that we don't go through our days offering prayers of thanks and and cries for help to our Heavenly Father? Not at all. I think that's a continuous part of prayer, as Paul exhorted the Thessalonians. But my brothers and sisters, if that's all we ever do, then we're living on a diet of fast food prayer, and that is not healthy. Christ calls us to a diet of healthy prayer. Have a good meal each day. 
Spend time with your Father and let this prayer inform the way you relate with Him.